From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Scleral Lenses, Part 2. We also had a number of patients with persistent epithelial defects, and this is where these lenses were truly astonishing. First this. If time and money were no object, you'd probably go to a lot of meetings. Not just ASCRS, but ESCRS, APACRS, AAO, Hawaiian Eye, and Winter Update, and you'd learn a ton. But money is an issue, and time an even bigger one. That's why I go to all of those meetings for you. Speak with the presenters you'd like best, and get them to distill their talks down to just a few minutes. You can see all of these interviews at no cost at the iWorld Replay website. Just go to ewreplay.org, E-W-R-E-P-L-A-Y.org, and enjoy. This is part two of my interview with Muriel Shornak about scleral lenses. We pick up where we left off last time. Let me get you to talk about your findings, your results. Improved ocular comfort was noticed in all but two patients, and those two patients uh, were classified as undifferentiated dry eye syndrome. We all have patients in our practice who have severe dry eye symptoms, but don't necessarily have the clinical findings that would explain those symptoms. And so the two patients with minimal improvement uh, were, in fact, undifferentiated dry eye syndrome and were, were some of those patients with um, severe symptoms but uh, minimal clinical signs. And I, I do struggle with that. And this study showed me that I need to be very cautious in promising anything to these patients. Uh, long-term wear for these patients was in that 50% category. But at least um, initially, all but two noticed some improvement or significant improvement in comfort. Uh, in other patients, like those with graft-versus-host disease, Salzman's disease, exposure keratopathy, Sjogren syndrome, neurotrophic keratopathy, uh, significant improvement was noted in ocular comfort. In terms of ocular surface protection, uh, patients who need that protection are those who were at high risk for developing uh, an epithelial defect, those with neurotrophic keratopathy, exposure keratopathy, uh, status post chemical injury, or uh, Salzman's nodular degeneration. Uh, we achieved protection of the ocular surface during the course of the study in all but one. One patient did develop an epithelial defect beneath the lens uh, that actually required a temporary tarsorophy. Interestingly, she has now gone back to scleral lens where uh, upon resolution of that defect with a slightly deeper lens that will hopefully keep her out of trouble in the future going forward. We also had a number of patients with persistent epithelial defects, and this is where these lenses were truly astonishing. In all of the patients with persistent epithelial defects, some of which had been present for months prior to the initiation of scleral lenswear, the defect resolved. I want to ask what adverse events, what, what complications did you observe in, in the study? But the, the, the qualifier that, that, I, that I want to make is by their very definition, these are patients with 
ocular surface problems, these are patients at, at risk for, for, for complications if, if they don't wear scleral lenses. Absolutely. And at least during the, the first several years of practice, we were very cautious in who we fit these lenses with. If they could use any other therapeutic uh, measure other than surgery, we were certainly going with that first. So these, you're absolutely right, are very sick eyes. During the course of the study, we identified three patients with complications. One patient had anterior basement membrane dystrophy and within the first several weeks of scleral lens wear, developed an epithelial defect that suggested an application error. So it looked as if she had managed to dislodge already loose corneal epithelium uh, during the process of lens application. We retrained her and actually used the lens as a therapeutic device during the re-epithelialization process, and she's done beautifully in the time since that, and it's been a couple of years. The second complication was the one I mentioned earlier uh, with a patient with limbal stem cell deficiency, um, and she did develop an epithelial defect underneath the lens that did require tarsorophy uh, temporarily, but has now returned to lenswear and uh, shows every indication of maintaining good ocular surface health uh, despite that. And the third patient did develop a culture-positive staph ulcer. He was in the end stages of graft-versus-host disease at the time that he developed the ulcer, so was in a severely immunocompromised state. Uh, once the ulcer resolved, he went back to scleral lens wear and wore the lens uh, through the rest of his life. One incidental finding that, that you made with the study, which I found very interesting, was that the, the patients who discontinued scleral contact lens wear uh, or, or over the course of the study, for, for whatever reason they, they uh, chose, um, actually seemed to have benefited from the, the, the period that they were wearing scleral lens lenses, that the eyes were, were more tolerant um, to, you know, to, to, to not having the, the, the scleral lens and that, that, that to, to some extent that the scleral lens was therapeutic and that, that the ocular surface had bounced back. Now, in, in light of, of this, is scleral when lens wear generally now recommended for a defined period or is the intention to have the patients wear the lens long term? That was one of the things that I found most interesting as well, particularly with the patients with limbal stem cell deficiency. They were all able to discontinue scleral lens wear after a period of wear. Um, and one of them went back to scleral lenses temporarily, but I do tend to think of scleral lenses as a, a bridge. And it seems that if you can create a sufficiently robust epithelium that the patient can cut down on scleral lens wear or even discontinue it entirely. And um, so now when I present scleral lenses to patients, I, I used to tell them that this is something that you're going to have to wear every day for the rest of your life. But now, particularly for those patients with perhaps mild epitheliopathy due to a neurotrophic cornea or a non-healing epithelial defect due to a particular event, I'll tell them, look, you're going to have to wear this lens for a while, and I don't know what that time period will be, 
but we are going to consider this a, a potentially time-limited application. Given the fact that there's so much we don't know about these lenses, I don't want to over-treat patients. So certainly as long as they're deriving benefit from the lenses, I want to continue to wear the lenses. But I've got a number of patients now with a number of different conditions who find that they can maintain good comfort or good ocular surface health with either no scleral lens wear and less aggressive therapy such as uh, frequent use of lubricant drops or lubricant drops plus restasis or who can wear the lens on a very limited basis, a couple of hours a day and maintain epithelial health and good comfort. That's very exciting. Yeah, no, it's cool stuff. Only one of the patients in your study discontinued scleral lens wear because of, of, of cost. Now, I, I was under the impression that these lenses were, were quite pricey. Uh, is, that, um, is, that, is that not, not the case uh, currently? Well, lenses are pricier than a lot of other lenses on the market. But when we started fitting scleral lenses at Mayo, there were very few options for scleral lens wear. Um, the Boston Foundation for Sight does a fabulous job of fitting patients with scleral lenses, and they have a fabulous, highly customizable de device, but that customization comes at a cost. So if a patient is able to wear a commercially available device, it's much more cost-effective. Um, most scleral lenses, and I don't mean to talk out of turn here, I have no idea what pricing is like across the country, but... Uh, you know, if you think about a bitoric rigid gas permeable lens as being potentially three, $300, $350, a scleral lens is generally five to $600. Yeah, so sure. more expensive, but not thousands of dollars. So as manufacturing processes have evolved and as scleral lens fitting sets have become more popular and as customization uh, no longer requires uh, travel to uh, an off-site clinic, um, the prices come down as well, which is very good news for patients who could potentially benefit from these devices. Muriel, in the context of your own practice, where, where do scleral lenses fit, fit in? Where, where, at, 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 at what point do you, do you offer scleral lenses? In general, it's not the first-line treatment unless the cornea is in danger of getting considerably worse without that surface protection. But we'll certainly try lots of other things first, starting with, of course, lubricant drops, um, secretagogues. We could try punctal occlusion or cautery. Uh, moisture chamber glasses are sometimes used before a patient will try scleral lenses. The place that I position them is generally right before we're thinking of doing some sort of surgical intervention. So if the choice is between a scleral lens or a conjunctival flap or tarsorophy, we'll try the scleral lens first to see if we can get the therapeutic benefit that we need. And in many cases, we can, so we can avoid that more aggressive surgical intervention. Now, during the last eight years, we have probably become a little bit less hesitant to try sclerals for um, for less severe disease. So I, I still think that you need to try other more well-understood therapy first, but certainly if that therapy fails to provide the desired effect, a scleral lens is certainly a reasonable option.
You had actually mentioned a while back, am I concerned with conjunctival vessel compression? That's a fascinating question that doesn't have a particularly good answer as of yet. Um, I would prefer to leave no trace on a, uh, the anterior surface of someone's eye. But in some cases, that conjunctival tissue is boggy and somewhat spongy. And so if you put a, a large lens on the eye that is supported by that tissue, you are going to get a little bit of compression. What I don't like is uh, frank impingement where those vessels disappear under the uh, flange of the lens and then become congested near the limbus. That doesn't look healthy and is probably not sustainable, but sometimes a bit of conjunctival compression can't be avoided simply because of the structure of the conjunctiva. Um, and then you'd also ask, how thick should the fluid vault be? That is truly uh, a subject of some interest right now. Several years ago, Longis Michaud published a paper that calculated the oxygen transmissibility through a scleral lens fluid reservoir combination and determined that minimal clearance was preferable in order to maintain adequate oxygen transmissibility through that lens fluid reservoir combination. The question, though, that we need to ask is, whether or not the cornea can utilize oxygen dissolved in that fluid reservoir. Because if it can, it's possible that oxygen transmissibility through the system might not be critically important. It's also possible that we are getting more tear exchange underneath the lenses than we think. Um, if you put fluorescein under a lens and then let the patient go, they'll come back several hours later and there will still be fluorescein underneath that lens, which would imply that there's very little fluid exchange behind the lens. If you do it the other way around, however, and you put the lens on with clear saline and then apply fluorescein to the outside of the lens, most of my patients display some fluorescein migration into that post-lens fluid reservoir within a matter of minutes. So there is certainly exchange behind these lenses, but we have yet to quantify the rate or volume of that exchange. So um, in terms of oxygen transmissibility and oxygen supply to the cornea, um, there are a lot of unanswered questions. Now when you're fitting these lenses primarily for the treatment of ocular surface disease that is so severe that the patient would otherwise proceed to surgery, you can be reasonably certain that the benefit of scleral lens wear is going to outweigh that risk. But as scleral lens designs have, have proliferated over the course of the last several years, we're seeing a movement towards prescription of scleral lenses for simple correction of refractive error. And I think that question is going to need to be answered. We're going to have to answer some questions about um, how to minimally impact corneal physiology before we can widely uh, accept that application. It's, it's really, really cool stuff. And I'm, I'm positive, as, as I'm sure you are too, that, that, uh, that, that we're going to see these, these, these lenses more and more in, in mainstream dry eye practices. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. They do provide 
considerable re relief for a lot of patients. Even for those patients with undifferentiated dry eye syndrome, we had really good results in the study. And although roughly 50% of those patients did not continue to wear the lenses beyond a year, they did derive some benefit. They were among those patients who found that after a period of corneal protection, they were able to carry on with life without quite such an aggressive form of therapy. It's great stuff. Muriel, I want to thank you very much for, for being so, so generous with your time with us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Muriel Shornack comes to us from the Mayo Clinic Department of Ophthalmology in Rochester, Minnesota. Her paper, Scleral Lenses in the Management of Ocular Surface Disease, appears in the July 2014 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Shornak or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.